the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The airing of this program by this station is not an endorsement or recommendation by the station of the products or services discussed in the program. The station does not guarantee the results of any investments made by a listener to this program. Josh Pick is the Chief Investment Advisor with Aptus Wealth Management, a state-registered investment advisory firm. This program is sponsored by Aptus Wealth Management. Exposure to ideas and financial vehicles discussed should not be considered investment advice or recommendation to buy or sell financial vehicle. This information should not be considered tax or legal advice. Individuals should consult with professionals to see if any ideas expressed would fit their specific situation. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Securities can fluctuate and when redeemed may be more or less than when originally invested. Thanks for joining us for this segment on the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Radio Show. I'm Bruce Hooley here with Josh Pick of Aptus Wealth Management. Looking forward to spending the next half hour with you talking about concepts that can help you increase your nest egg. Saving money, great, but you really need to invest money to have it pay dividends for you. Not necessarily actual dividends, but I mean pay off, grow, so that you arrive at those uh, later life stages with money that can sustain you through your retirement and uh, take away the burden that you might face if you had not invested. That's what they specialize in at Aptus. They are fiduciaries, which means they are legally obligated to do what is best for you. And they offer you a free consultation where they can explain what that means. And they can also explain the retirement blueprint that they put together, which is tailored to every single client. My wife and I are clients at Aptus. I highly recommend that you sit at least for the consultation so that you get to know them. It's an enlightening conversation that, in my case, offered us peace of mind. We were relieved of the burden of having to worry about, are we in the right kind of investment assets? What kind of return are we getting? Um, we were hopeful that we had not screwed it up, but retirement and your nest egg is one of those things that if you make a bad mistake, it is hard to come back from it later in life because you don't want to work until you're way into your 70s or 80s. At least I don't. 614-917-1040 if you'd like to take advantage of that free consultation. Set up your appointment by calling their office, 614-917-1040. Or you can make your appointment online at AptusWealth, A-P-T-U-S, AptusWealth.com. If you're outside the central Ohio area, not a problem. They have many clients who are outside the area. The uh, miracle of Zoom, one good thing from the pandemic that we have that has enabled Aptus to service clients outside the area. So let's go into the uh, conversation. Somebody comes in for a uh, uh, a consultation for the first time. And... I'm curious, uh, how much do you have to focus them on what they're trying to accomplish? I mean, I think most of my previous thoughts about retirement was just, I'm going to save as much money as I can afford to save, invest as much money as I can afford to save, and I don't have any clue what the number needs to be, but if it's not uh, in the... uh, high hundreds of thousands of dollars or a million plus, and that really didn't seem at all realistic to me. Um, I'm not going to have enough, and not having enough worries me. And so, like going to the dentist, um, I don't want to go to the dentist because I don't like going to the dentist, and then I don't like going to the dentist because I have a lot more cavities than when I should have gone to the dentist a long time ago. 
Well, hopefully we're not as bad as the dentist. No, because I no, hate you're not. Dentist as well. Um, I think a lot of attention needs to be paid, and there has to be a process, and that's why we have a process. And the the, the unfortunate byproduct of that process is it takes time. And it takes time because we have a lot of misconceptions or just a straight lack of knowledge on income generation off of our asset pool or off of all this money that we saved up or invested over time. Most of what we read about or we can easily access in the way of information is about how to grow it. There's very little information about how to distribute it. So knowing that, we don't even really know the challenges that are associated with that. For example, um, when people come to my office and I say, well, you understand about asset allocation in general, right? Yep, diversity. Yeah, you don't want all your eggs in one basket or, you know, mm-hmm. not all your apples in one cart or whatever their uh, metaphor is. Well, how about investing? Well, I know I need some big companies, small companies. I got to buy them at the right price. They have a good, you know, maybe I look at Morningstar and I look up five-star funds. Mm-hmm. And I know that's a good place to start. And I understand fees are important. I got to play that game. We all, at least anecdotally, know that stuff. And then I say, well, what impact do you think the potential risk of sequence of returns is going to have when you retire? Never heard of it. That is one of the biggest challenges of retirement income. You'd say, well, uh, what about the impact of inflation? Well, I know that's a problem. Things get more expensive every year. Well, do you think that healthcare goes up by the same rate as just daily expenses? Well, no, absolutely not. Well, how are you going to account for that? I have no idea. Uh, what about long-term care costs? <laughs> I don't even know. I'm not going in one of those. Yeah. Right. And the list goes on. It's because all of the attention is paid on the exciting stuff. And it stands to reason. I hate to put on my tinfoil hat, but if I was a fund company or if I was Wall Street, I want people to invest their money, never take anything out, rinse and repeat forever, because that's how I make money. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of money or time trying to tell you how to get money out of the funds that I'm investing for you, making money for you. I mean, why would I do that? It's why counterproductive. So it's important that we go through a process and the process builds. So in meeting number one, we're simply just asking a lot of questions, but then the analysis starts. So in meeting number two, we analyze everything that you're doing and show you whether or not your error is going to hit the target. We kind of call this the meeting where can you achieve the objective that you think you can achieve? Yes or no. But then we start really diving into what are the challenges that you face that you need to conquer? Because sometimes you can win in spite of yourself. Sometimes you can either by just happenstance or serendipity, you can succeed. And, you know, sometimes that's even more dangerous than failing. You know, when you get gain confidence in spite of yourself, you're almost more dangerous to yourself than you were before. So we start diving into what are the challenges that you face ahead? How do you conquer those? Not as fear mongering or telling you, you know, the old sales process where you say, well, you know, I got to build a moat and I'm the only bridge. Not Mm -hmm. that at all. Let's just identify realistic things that could occur, and then let's start uncovering ways that we can conquer them. And in meeting number three, we cover those ways. So we say, okay, we've identified these problems, but how do you solve them? Here's the way to solve them. So we're not creating fear. Uh, We're just making sure you're aware as much on the distribution side as you maybe were on the accumulation side. Yeah, I think the thing that I didn't get was that uh, what I had saved for retirement was not just going to be like this pot of money uh, at the end of my working life that I would withdraw from as I needed. And boy, I hope it doesn't run out or I become a burden to my kids or have to depend on the government is I didn't really understand the the concept of that generating income for me in retirement. And does that make me a, a common client or an uncommon client? Incredibly common. 
Uh, what we see typically is people will have 401ks because that's their predominant retirement savings vehicle. They'll have a 401k and they say, well, my plan was I was going to call the 401k company and tell them to send me X dollars per month, per year, percentage, mm -hmm. you know, some formulation of that. And my question to them is, well, where are they going to send it from? Well, my 401k. No, I, I heard that. But you have 10 different funds in your 401k. Where are they going to send it from? Well, they just proportionally take it out of all of them. What well, do you know that that's a good idea? I don't know. I mean, it's just what they do. Well, I would argue that if you were going to take money out of a volatile thing or a less volatile thing, which one would you pick? You'd probably pick the less volatile. So you would say, I want to take it all from maybe the cash or bond fund or the limited maturity bond fund or the money market or something like that and leave my stock positions alone, particularly in years like last year where the market was down or particularly in years like this year where the market's really volatile. Most 401ks don't even allow you the option to do that. They say, we just proportionally take it out of all your funds. So there's a lot of challenges facing retirees because not only do they not know the answer, but in many cases, the way they're set up, they're not even allowed to use the right answer. So you have to start really diving into what's the logic behind that. And the way that you do that is you show the impact of variability of the sequence of return risk. And we go over this with every single client. We show them a piece that was put out by a major fund institution that is not using one of their funds. It's just using random generated rate of returns and saying, I have no idea which three of these people I'm going to be. And one has tons of money at the end of 25 years. One went broke and one has a little bit of money. How do I determine which one I am? And I said, well, right now you can't. You're just crossing your fingers and hoping you're the first person with a lot of money. We have to figure out a predictable way. Now, here's the unfortunate part, Bruce. The predictable way isn't going to get you to the number one person, and that's who we're measuring ourselves against. Well, I want to have a million dollars when I start, live on $2 million a year, and still have a million dollars when I'm done. <laughs> that doesn't work that Only way. Only for Bobby Bonilla, does that right, work? Right, right. But that's kind of what we're benchmarking ourselves against. What we're, we are so concerned about getting a 9 or 10% rate of return that we ignore, well, can we still reach our objectives even when we're getting 9 or 10%? And what this piece illustrates is that you can take three people that all average a 7% rate of return, and those three people, because the order in which the returns occur when you're taking money, can have drastically, I mean, they're not even in the same ballpark types of outcomes. So my question to them would be, would you rather have when you retire a 5% rate of return or a 9? Everybody goes, 9. You don't have enough information yet. What if you get negative 20 the first five years and you went broke before the big ones started kicking in? Consistency is incredibly important. And when you have times like these, where the market's posting 15% rate of returns this year, and you go, well, I'm only up eight. I must be an idiot. You're not an idiot. You're actually just playing it smart. Yeah. And that's a hard thing to understand. It is, unless you sit down and have the conversation with Josh and his team over your no-obligation consultation, and then you do understand it. I've said all uh, throughout, becoming a client at Aptis has offered us peace of mind. And as you're getting close to retirement, and I'm not ready to retire yet, not even within the next couple of years, but I want to make sure that I don't get to that point and have wasted time that would have allowed me to fix an issue that now confronts me. So I would highly recommend that consultation. 614-917-1040 to set it up. Aptus Wealth, their website, aptuswealth.com, A-P-T-U-S. They're located in Lewis Center. It is right off Route 750, and it's not far from 23 and 270. So uh, let's chat about the uh, SECURE Act of uh, 2022. has provisions that are set to take effect in 2024. 2024 sounds like it's a long way away. It's six months away because we're halfway through. Uh, 
It's always better to be uh, proactive than reactive. Remind me again what the SECURE Act is and what some of the things that you're planning for and uh, working toward already in preparation for that becoming law in 2024. Yeah, so the SECURE Act 2.1, or or 1.0, if you want to call it that, which is called the SECURE Act, was passed uh, previously. And that changed a bunch of things, particularly as it related to retirement uh, savings. You know, there was a bunch of provisions in there. One that really hit a lot of people, particularly in the retirement category, was it pushed the required minimum distribution age from 70 and a half to 72. And that age or those required minimum distributions are simply exactly that. At some point in your IRAs, 401ks, 403bs, all that alphabet soup stuff where you've been kicking the can on taxes up to this point and deferring taxes, the government wants their money. So they force you to take some money out of it. It used to be that started at 70 and a half, now it's 72. The Secure Act 2.0 kicked that to 73 and then all the way to 75 by the 2030s. So what does that mean and why is that beneficial? It gives you more time to do things like Roth conversions. It gives you more time to try and lessen the blow of what those minimum required distributions will be. So that's actually hugely advantageous. Those are the pros. There's a lot of cons, though, too, of the SECURE Act. And one of them, very apropos timing, as we're sitting here on Friday looking at, you know, one of the Supreme Courts, I believe it was out of, what, Nebraska maybe, uh, decided to turn down Biden's uh, paying off of student loan debt yeah, or relieving the, student yeah, loan the debt. Yeah, the SCOTUS threw that out. Not a, not, a, not a result the president's happy with. Well, and I'm sure a bunch of people are going to protest over that, that have student loans and would love for them to get wiped out. But one thing that the Secure Act 2.0 did do, and, you know, I'm tossed up on this, and this is great for a conversation. I know you're a political guy, so mm-hmm. we can get in a little bit of a political conversation about it, is that the Secure 2.0 allows employees of companies to beginning in 2024, I believe, start to pay off their student loan debt via their retirement savings. So in other words, rather than putting the money into the 401k, they direct it straight towards their student loan debt, and they can apply their company match to it. Wow. Now, that's a good thing on the surface, right? It's a good thing. I can. Well, I'm in in favor of people paying off their debts. 100%. So why is that? an advantageous thing. So you're allowing me to use my company match to pay off a student loan debt. And you're allowing me to, at least on the surface, it looks like, and we don't have final details here, but on the surface, put away pre-tax dollars to pay off my student loan debt. That's cool. It's also one of the saddest things I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. Because you're giving away a ton of gains that you could have when you finally retire. And the fact that student loan debt is just such a natural part of society now that we're just incorporating it into every company across the country to good automatically point. pay it off. Yeah, good point. Now, I don't want to put on my tinfoil hat, but it seems like, to an outside observer, that we're being encouraged to shackle ourselves with debt for the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. Whether it's the average home buyer only stays in a home for five to seven years, so we get 30-year mortgages, but we only stay there for five years, and then we buy bigger houses, which means we never get out of our home mortgage debt. Um, use credit cards for everything, right? And credit yep. card debt is on the rise. Yep. And now the only way to get ahead is to go get student loans and then no worries. That's just part of your paycheck. And I kind of make this akin to, you know, it wasn't always the case where your taxes were directly deducted from your check. There used to be a time where you had to write a check. Now, if you ask most people what their gross income is, they tell you, well, I make a hundred thousand bucks a year. What do you bring home every two weeks? Two grand. Ugh. Where does it go? I don't know. 
I can tell you where it's going. A large chunk of it is going to taxes, yeah. and you don't even know what they are because they auto-deduct. Yeah. So people will now get in a situation where they don't even think about how much student loan debt they have or how they're paying it off because it's just it's just part of that stuff that comes out of my check. The thing that becomes discouraging about this is why is education so expensive to begin with? Well, you can really see the trajectory change of the price of college as soon as the federal government came in and said, we'll loan you whatever you want to go to college. Yeah. Then student loan went through the roof. Yeah. Well, now if people are willing to just start paying for it out of their paycheck, what's to stop from the consistent increase of student loan debt? I feel like these programs, unfortunately, are just going to saddle people with more and more debt. Again, good news, Secure Act 2.0, you can pay for it out of your check, but I think it's really pointing towards some bad things to come. Yeah, and as I dug into the student loan question as the Supreme Court was getting ready to rule on it, I thought of you because I think there were some things that were indicative of habits that get in the way of people saving for retirement, investing for retirement. For instance, the debt uh, is greater, a greater portion of the total debt and student loan debt is aggregated among people over the age of 50 than it is in people from ages 18 to 24. So that makes no sense to me. If you had student loan debt, you're over 50. I don't think there is a preponderance of people going to college in their 30s. That's debt that's been there for a long time, which leads to the next depressing statistic, which is that 52% of all loan borrowers are underwater on their loans. They owe more than they originally took out. And how many of those borrowers are parents taking out loans for their kids as well? Yeah. And of the people who were underwater, they found that they, during COVID, the three-year period where student loan payments were frozen, which you would think, okay, I don't have to pay off my student loan debt. I should be able to meet my budget Elsewhere, because whatever I'm paying per month, I now don't have to pay. Among those people, they added on average $1,200 to their total debt during the three years they were not paying on their student loans. Those are cons those are indicative to me of a faulty consumer mindset when people tell you, well, I, I don't have money to save for retirement. They have it. They don't have the discipline to invest it, set it aside, and work something like a blueprint retirement program. Well, it's, it's just poor behaviors. Yeah, I mean, we have to, we're reaching generations now that are be, being taught by previous generations that saving money and living within your means really isn't that important. Matter of fact, if you watch any Instagram reel or TikTok video, it seems like one says, get out of debt. You got the Dave Ramsey approach, get out of debt, get out of debt, get out of debt. But then immediately after that, juxtaposing it is another one saying the only way that you can become a bazillionaire is with debt. Well, I'd rather be a bazillionaire than just be one of these boring people that mm -hmm. lives within my means. So I might as well just take on debt. So we buy houses that we can't afford. We buy things that we can't afford because we believe that perception is important. And if we are perceived to be wealthy, then somehow our wealth will ultimately end up catching up with what we perceive us to be. Usually not the case, but you know, I think Instilling those qualities early on, and much like we said, well, taxes come out automatically, we don't even know what they are. We should have savings come out automatically without even knowing what it is. And then just auto set it to increase over time. So anytime you get a raise, you increase your savings. Yes. And then this autopilot approach wins. It wins every time. I hate to break it to people, but 
this is not a complicated process to get to the pot of money. It becomes much more complicated once you have a lot of money and you're looking to distribute it out over the rest of your life and not make any mistakes with this huge sum of money. But developing the huge sum of money just requires discipline. It's really not that complicated. Yeah, and if you have an employer who is contributing uh, in addition to what you're saving, uh, I, you wouldn't say no to someone who walked up to you on the street and said, here, I'd like to give you $5. You wouldn't say no to that. Your employer is saying that when they offer a 401k match. Yeah, they're literally saying, if you give me five, I'll give you 10. And people are saying it's not worth the five. Does it doesn't make any sense. Well, that's because the only hiccup with the five is you got to wait a little while before I give you the 10. Correct. Well, I don't like that idea. Right. Yeah. But, you know, kind of going on further with the Secure 2.0 Act, uh, the purpose of it, or at least the 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 desired impact uh, or the way it's being proposed is that it will encourage people to save more for retirement. It will give them more avenues. It'll autopilot some of these things. It'll give you the option to opt out, but you'll automatically be opt-in to some level of savings. But there's also kind of some underpinnings in here that are you know, lead to a little bit of concern. Um, for example, beginning in 2024, high wage earners over the age of 50. Now, how they're going to define high wage yeah. earners, we'll see. But once you're over the age of 50 you can contribute more to your 401k. It's called a catch-up contribution. So the the ideology there is if you got a little bit behind, you're kind of getting on that 5, 10-yard line, now it's time to start mm -hmm. really putting your foot on the accelerator. You used to be able to put in more into your 401k, and you still can. However, you cannot put that in as pre-tax money. It has to go in as after-tax money. Mm. Now, here's the real big caveat. If your employer does not offer a Roth option, you just can't do the the catch up at all. Wow. Well, because I guess that is designed so that the government gets its gets its tax, tax dollars yeah. today. Yeah. So what I'm seeing in a lot of this, and and here's I'll, I'll give you one other provision, and then I'll I'll give you kind of why I think this is going to be concerning and challenging for folks. Another one, and this is great. If you have a 529 plan, one of the concerns of a 529 plan, which is the way that a lot of people save for kids' college. If you have one of those and you don't use it, but you've had it for 15 years, well, now you can roll that money up to $35,000 of it into a Roth IRA. So it's not all for naught. Hey, I saved up. Good news. My kid got a scholarship. Well, I didn't just throw that money away. I can use that for retirement. That's a great thing. Mm -hmm. But think about some of these provisions I'm rolling out. If, if your employer doesn't have a Roth IRA, well, then you may or may not be able to do the catch-up contribution. If you have a 529 plan and it's been in existence for at least five years, but it has to be in existence for at least 15 years from your last contribution. Then you can do 35. It's just getting more and more and more complicated. And anytime things get more and more complicated, that means these nuances give you opportunity to either do well off of the nuance and be a benefactor of these things or get caught in the jet wash and screw it up and end up paying penalties. And this seems to be kind of the, the lay of the land these days, which I hate to say it's good for me. I don't think it's good for the country, but it's good for me because this is my job is trying to add some clarity. Certainly part of what you do is getting ready for new policies that are coming on board. How much of what you do is uh, adjusting to um, an analysis of what you think might be coming? I mean, that's a law. You know it's going to happen. There, as we talked about, is there a recession? Is there not a recession? How much advanced planning do you do on things that are not set in stone like a law coming on board? We have to because you're investing for what you think is coming, not for what happened. And unfortunately, most 
people invest for what happened. They look at their 401k statement and say, which which one of these funds had the best rate of return? That's the one I'm going to put all my money into. Mm-hmm. And in reality, that typically doesn't work in the long run. So, And again, though, that can be challenging because people are looking at current rates of return or maybe the last three months and saying, well, why aren't you keeping up? Well, those funds that had the highest rate of return, they haven't been highest forever, typically. You got to be in the right spots at the right time. So we're always forecasting looking forward. Yeah. And that takes the emotion out of it. And that's what I think uh, keeps people from making big mistakes is if you take the emotion out of it, because emotion causes you to make irrational decisions, um, you know, born of the worst emotion possible, which is fear. So get with Josh, get with his team, have a fiduciary who is legally obligated to do what is best for you. You get the chance to go in with no obligation and get to know them, see if you're a fit. Set up your appointment. Call their office, 614-917-1040. Their web address, you can make your appointment online, is aptuswealth.com, A-P-T-U-S. Very conveniently located in Lewis Center, off Route 750, not far from 23 and 270. And join us on Monday for Money Monday at 989 The Answer with Josh Pick. Josh, thanks so much for your time. We'll see you next week. You as well. Thanks for joining us with the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Radio Show. I'm Bruce Hooley here with Josh Pick of Aptus Wealth Management, and we will discuss retirement, retirement planning, financial planning, growing your investments. It's not enough to save. You also have to invest, take advantage of what time can do for you when you have prudent investments. That's what they specialize in at Aptus, getting you into the right vehicles. That is the result of a conversation that you have with them, and maybe it starts as did my wife and my relationship with Aptus via the no-obligation consultation. Set yours up by calling their office, 614-917-1040, and making your appointment for that no-obligation consultation. Or you can go to their website, which is aptuswealth.com, A-P-T-U-S, aptuswealth.com, and make your appointment that way. They're easy to find in Lewis Center, just off Route 750, which is not far from 23 and 270. And Josh, as we think about retirement, and everybody is hopefully progressing toward that regardless of where they are in their career, uh, how much, if at all, should net worth be a uh, tandem conversation or a tandem number that people look at as it concerns what their retirement balance is? Or are there any tells in what the net worth of someone is as it relates to how they've prioritized their retirement plan in conjunction with what their net worth might be? Net worth is a great measure, like there is a lot of great measures in finance. Um, You know, obviously, if you're worth $100 million, it's a lot better than being worth $1 million for the purposes of money, at least. Um, So I'm not, you know, negating the value of looking at net worth. However, I think that maybe we've become a little bit too focused on it. For example, I, I can't tell you how many times on a monthly basis I'll have somebody come in who's a, you know, retired police officer or a retired teacher that has a very significant pension. You know, they're getting five, six, seven thousand dollars a month off of a pension, and they'll come in and say, "Well, I'm not rich like the rest of your clients. I only have an extra two hundred thousand dollars saved." Hmm. Well, the value of that pension, if we we're going to put that in a present value calculation, is very, very, very valuable. I mean, that's more. That's worth more than a million dollars. Sure. So. You know, sometimes net worths can be very misleading. Similarly, if you have a net worth that is 100% in a Roth IRA, that is a significantly different net worth than having 100% of it in a 401k or a traditional IRA just because of the taxation. 
Um, so, you know, I think it's important not to get so distracted with network that we don't remember that we live off of cash flow, not off of our balance sheet. Um, that said, uh, you know, in the previous segment, we were talking about, you know, the savings habits of millennials versus baby boomers versus Gen Zers, et cetera. And it looked like the information was encouraging that as the generations have gone on, the savings rates have both gotten higher and the age at which people start saving has gotten lower. But conversely, the problem is it seems like as we move jobs, we kind of make some foolish decisions and cash out our 401ks. Well, I wanted to echo that a little bit in net worth in that if you take that same study and then you extrapolate that over what are the net worths of those same generations? So if you say, if Gen Zers are saving money at a rapid rate, mm -hmm. well, then it would stand a reason that their net worths would be pretty significant or at least positive. Hopefully. Shy of maybe student loans, yeah. for example, yeah. which obviously have gotten pretty exorbitant over the years. But the reality is, although Gen Zers are saving at an exponentially higher rate, 41% of them still say they have a negative net worth. 38% of millennials have a negative net worth. And people age over age 59, 21% of them have a negative net worth. So what that tells me is, and this should be no shock to anybody listening to the show, is that the polarity in our savings universe is about as strong as the polarity of in our political universe mm -hmm, today. Mm -hmm. And what you choose to do with your money today will make a dramatic difference on what you can do later on. So if there's anything that I can implore people to do, it's start early. Stay consistent, don't come up with excuses, and come up with a logical plan for savings. And then that obviously begs the question, well, what am I supposed to do with it? I'm not saving, I'm investing, and where do I invest? Yeah, and that's what uh, obviously uh, they specialize in at Aptus is putting you in the right vehicle, depending on where you are. And if you're 35 years away from retirement, uh, the most prudent vehicle for you is going to be a lot different than somebody who is 65 years old and has been saving, has been investing rather, and has a nest egg that they're more, you know, still trying to grow, of course, but uh, but also to protect, which is not as much of a concern when you're younger. And they can talk you through and help you understand all these concepts at Aptus. Set up your consultation, as my wife and I did, 614-917-1040. Maybe you'll become Aptus clients, as my wife and I did. You can also make your appointment online at Aptus Wealth, A-P-T-U-S, aptuswealth.com. Here's a number that uh, I noticed this week. 36% of millionaires say it will, quote, take a miracle to retire amid rising costs and a shaky market. Now, I don't know if millionaires means a million in the bank or million, millionaires means a million in net worth, which is not, it's not unattainable now for a lot of what would appear to be, quote, unquote, average income people because of houses and real estate appreciation and all those kinds of things. But you were talking about negative net worth. And we're in a climate now where our federal debt is increasing. I saw this week that credit card debt is over a trillion for the first time ever. You just outlined that the way to arrive at financial independence later in life is to be basically disciplined. Have a plan, execute the plan, and save money. As you observe in your role as a fiduciary, somebody who's legally obligated to help people reach financial independence with the amount of money that they can invest, do you see a real doomsday scenario out there on the horizon as we continue both individually, credit card debt, and collectively, our government, 
piling up what appear to be these astronomical debt numbers that we don't really seem to have much serious concentration on fixing. Uh, do I see a doomsday scenario? Well, it depends on what you define as doomsday. Uh, do maybe I, see I overstated it? that, but yeah. I mean, I just wonder, like, as you observe that, um, maybe a better way to say it would be how sustainable is that to continue down these roads? You know, let me give you an example on what I think is going to change. So my, my grandparents, uh, my grandfather was a, uh, was an HVAC guy. Mm -hmm. My mom, my grandmother actually worked in a prison. Um, they both had pensions and they made some foolish decisions and and I wouldn't say that they're, they're past now. So I guess I can, I can say it now, but they, they cashed out their pensions to buy a business that was a foolish business that went under. So they were left with living purely off of a very modest social security. But off of that modest social security, they were able to own a car. They had an apartment. You know, it was an apartment in a reasonably safe area of town. Uh, they were able to provide for themselves food, health care, all the things. The scenario that I see is the polarity or the dispersion of wealth between the haves and the have-nots is going to continue to grow. And unfortunately, in today's world, and I... I feel somewhat like I'm speaking like an elitist when I say this, and I don't mean that by any means. But unfortunately, in this world today, if your plan is living exclusively off Social Security when you retire for the rest of your life, and you do not own your home in cash, you are rolling the dice. I'm not sure as we fast forward. I don't think this is a doomsday scenario. I think this is just an inherent scenario. As we move forward, I don't believe that you will be able to maintain a reasonable standard of living purely off of that. Now, if you've been making a hundred and some thousand dollars a year and your social security, you wait until you're 70, your social security is going to be $3,500, or $4,000 a month, then that's one scenario. Mm -hmm. But the average social security in the United States is in the one thousands, not in the three thousands. So if you think a combined income between two people, somewhere around 2,500 bucks, you know, our office, you go right down the road from our office, you'll be hard pressed to find an apartment that doesn't cost you twelve to $1,600 a month. Yeah. So that's a lion's share of your budget right out of the gate. So I, I think that disparity is going to continue to grow. Now, how do you get on the right side of that? Well, you keep saving disciplinedly. You don't participate in a really stupid investment strategy where you only make two, three, four percent, which is called saving rather than investing. When times get rough, you save more. You don't save less. You don't pull out and make, you know, really irrational decisions. And you don't exorbitantly spend and spend more than you make. So you get buried and trapped in that credit trap. If you can do those things, then the American dream is still very alive. The problem is your company used to be able to protect you against it. And now it's on you. Yeah. And as you say that, you know, um, we talked about some things that have led some bad habits that have led to either bad outcomes or potentially bad outcomes. And I'm looking at a story here, a study from the Center for Retirement Research at Boston College, which says that many parents who are empty nesters do not keep up with their retirement savings goals after their children leave home. Now, that just makes no sense to me. Like, after your kids leave home, you would, I think, theoretically have more money there to save, but... Of course, there are things that can intrude, like maybe you're helping your kids with college. And you've outlined this to me, that more and more people are assisting their 
quote-unquote independent children after they've left home and started life on their own because maybe mom and dad feel a burden to help that child continue the lifestyle that they grew accustomed to when they were living at home. Yeah, sometimes, I mean, when we think of living on their own or being independent, we're not talking about 18, 20, or even 25. We're talking about 30, 40, and 50-year-old kids. And, you know, I think sometimes we have uh, a propensity to do that because we feel like, well, you know, our lives are very good, our, our needs are met, and we're watching our children struggle, so we better help them. And it's not my job to tell you not to. Uh, but at the same time, it is my job to tell you when you're doing it at the peril of your own security. And that's where it gets rough. L- listen, if you have an extra $2,000 a month in your retirement budget, you spend it any way you want. If that's on your kids, fire away. I have no problem with that. We could talk about whether or not that's going to help your kids in the long run, but that's a different conversation. But if you're spending your last 20000 bucks in your retirement account on your kids and you're going to need a new car in the next five years, that's maybe not a financially sound move. Mm. And unfortunately, I see that a lot. Um, and you had mentioned earlier, and I don't think I answered the question, you know, people saying I have a million bucks and I don't know if I'll ever be able to retire. That's just simply reflect, reflective of what is your monthly required income need. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I oftentimes see, and, and I think we're all susceptible to believing this, you see the Mercedes, you see the country club membership, you see all the cool stuff and you go, wow, that person's really got it all figured out. And then you ask them how much money do they have? And they, ah, I got $2 million. And you go, wow, they, they really, they're good. What you don't know is they, their job pays them $750,000 a year and they're living on $750,000 mm-hmm. a year. Well, I'm not really good at math, but 2 million divided by 750 doesn't last real long. Nope. So they're in worse shape in many instances than people that have a half million dollars that are only living on four or $5,000 a month. So you mentioned right there monthly expenses. Uh, as people contemplate retirement and kind of envision what that could look like, I think, at least me, uh, I've thought more about what's that nest egg number that I need to get to to be comfortable. Is it a more prudent way for people to think about retirement, dividing it down to what are my monthly needs going to be, and then what are the variables that could affect that monthly number up or down? Yeah, the easiest way to do this is we're all living on what we make today. So I know that we we tend to get wrapped up in our gross income. You know, I make $120,000 a year. Okay, so I need ten grand a month. Oh, what are you bringing home every two weeks? And then it's almost depressing, right? Well, 3200 bucks yeah, a month. Yeah. So the real number is what are you living on today? And of that, are you spending all of it? Or are you saving some of it? And that gives us a very good gauge rather than coming in and saying, I've I've added up all my expenses and I need exactly this dollar amount. I don't know about you, but there's plenty of stuff in my monthly budget that I don't even know where the money goes. It just is what it is. You know, you you bought a raffle ticket. Yeah, there's just a whole bunch of extra money you forget about. So what are you living on today? Now, once you know that number, then it's very easy to extrapolate that number and say, well, all right, let's take out. We're going to have Social Security. We're going to have maybe a pension, hopefully. We have a little bit of rental income. What is the shortfall that we still have outstanding? And then if I future forecast that out and say, how much money do I need starting today to generate that amount of money for the rest of my life? Stress test for inflation and taxes and all that stuff. That's the easiest way to do it. And then obviously, how much risk are you comfortable taking or how much volatility is a better way to explain it? And these are all topics that will come up when you sit for your free consultation with Josh and the Aptus Wealth Management team. 
and you can set up that free consultation. There's no obligation at all by calling their office and making your appointment. Their number is 614-917-1040, 614-917-1040. Their web address, and you can make your appointment online. Their web address is aptuswealth, A-P-T-U-S, aptuswealth.com. And as I think about retirement now, I mean, I look, it's great. You start early, you're disciplined in your approach, put a certain amount of money away every month. And the people who have done that, and I think it's probably a dwindling uh, number, usually arrive at a pretty good situation if they've made prudent investments. But in terms of what is prudent and what is optimum, I would think that has changed a lot since maybe a guy who people hold up as the uh, perfect example of doing it the right way, Warren Buffett. He started early. He invests in big companies. He's built this incredible nest egg. Everybody envies Warren Buffett. And they want to take advice from Warren Buffett. Well, I'm going to I'm going to just guess. Tell me if I'm wrong. That there are a lot of different ways to invest now than there were when Warren Buffett started buying big companies in the 1940s. How much? Um, no, that's not how I want to ask it. Just how many options, or or what what is the evaluation process of options that people now might want to consider rather than saying. Well, Warren Buffett's worth $100 billion, and he did this, and so I'm going to do that, and it'll work out for me. Yeah, Warren Buffett's, I mean, it's an interesting story. Uh, you know, he had started investing in stocks when he was in his teenage years back in, I think, what, the 40s or 50s? Yeah, 1941, he bought his first stock. Yeah, so, I mean, y- you look at that and you think, you want to talk about having time on your side. One, he's 90 years old, so not all of us are going to live that long. Right. So he's had a tremendous amount of time. Um and this isn't to say that Warren Buffett isn't one of the most intelligent investors of all time, because he certainly is. And without saying Warren Buffett, you can't say Charlie Munger, which is his right-hand man, who's also incredibly intelligent. But when they first started that company, they were essentially investing in penny stocks. Nobody really talks about that. And it wasn't called penny stocks at the time, but they were buying very small, undervalued companies. And he was able to identify the disparity between the value of the company and what it was trading at. Well, in the 40s, remove computers. Mm-hmm. You could find some pretty significant disparities in companies' valuations versus what they were trading at because there wasn't that much information. So if you were willing to nerd out and dive into ba- into balance sheets and company reports and annual reports, you could find those disparities. That's how Warren started his business. Now, fast forward to today, much more difficult to identify huge variations between valuation and stock price because there's a million different analysts that are looking at every stock known to man under the you could pick any stock under the sun, and we could pull a full report in the next five minutes off yep. of it. So that approach is different. On top of that, Warren wanted to scale, and we wanted to scale. He realized that you can't scale buying and selling small amounts of shares of penny stocks. So he started essentially the first investment limited partnership. There's huge tax advantages to doing that, which is why Berkshire Hathaway is a very tax-efficient way to invest. And he decided that the easiest way to do this, to find those disparities, is let's just buy the whole darn company. Because if you go in, it's no different than if, if I walk into a, a carpet store and I say, how much is it per yard? Yeah, well, it's X dollars per yard. Mm-hmm. How about I buy your whole warehouse? I bet you get a better price. Yeah, you right? would. You certainly would. So he just started buying whole companies. Now, for the average investor, is that possible? Very, very difficult. But Warren's also been noted in saying now that they're so big, their ability to employ to deploy capital is very difficult because there's only so many companies they can buy with the amount of money that they have in in stock, which is why they're saying you might be better off buying other companies other than Berkshire today because we have so much cash that's just the anchor behind the boat. 
Yeah, I mean, he certainly has uh, provided a template for people to follow. But, uh, you know, I don't know if there were annuities and treasuries and all these different things. And you point out a good uh, a good fact that access to information now makes the sort of smorgasbord of options out there readily accessible to people. And that's what that's why people have someone like you doing what you do is because you can make them aware of all these different things of what the rates of return are, uh, whether there's a guaranteed rate of return, whether it's a variable rate of return. And the thing that I learned when sitting with you for the consultation that led to my wife and I becoming clients is that you don't have to go, quote unquote, all in on, say, the stock market. You can buy a vehicle that will get you a protected return and protect you from maximum losses in the market, which speaks to me to the nuances of the investment vehicles that are out there rather than I'm going to try to find a company that's undervalued, its assets are worth more than what its stock price is, and I'm going to try to duplicate what Warren Buffett has done to become the next Warren Buffett. Yeah, you know, and Warren Buffett says today that the best way to invest would be simply just buying shares of the S&P 500. Um, and the belief there is markets are efficient. The S&P 500 inherently is going to buy the best 500 companies, arguably, in the United States. So that's going to be very, very difficult to beat. Fair argument. However, uh, he also simultaneously says not everybody should be invested in the stock market because he has a very, he's admitted this many times, he has a very particular brain wiring that allows him to ignore losses entirely and allows him to pragmatically pick investments and just stay the course. He believes in his philosophy, and so he practices that term that you threw out earlier, that fancy Harvard term, benign neglect, which is basically, I believe in what I'm doing, I'm going to do that, and I'm not going to let short-term or even long-term losses move me off that. I'm going to stick with my strategy because I know it's a sound strategy. And you've discussed many times, the people who try to time the market or the people who react to a high, oh man, it's going sky high, I got to get in. Or the people who react to a low, wow, look at the market, it's way down, I got to get out. Doing that almost always portends that you will cost yourself more money than if you had just ridden out the volatility. Almost always. I can't think of a scenario where it doesn't, and you can look up statistics very readily available to to prove that. You know, the one thing that buying the index does not do is you had mentioned, you know, there's a bunch of different options out there. And to assume that everybody's plan should be the same would be to assume that everybody's the same. And I don't know if you have friends, uh, lots of friends, they're all different and they all have different ideologies, different beliefs on marriage, religion, investing, the name, it goes on and on. I have an example that's something that's very prominent right now um, that will probably be of value to a lot of the listeners of your show, and that is this very large contingency of folks that are now wanting to put their money where their mouth is in relation to their political or religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. You can call it biblical responsible, biblically responsible investing, call it a bunch of different things, or something that we hear oftentimes now is, I don't want to be involved in this ESG thing. Yeah. So get me out of that way. Mm-hmm. So one thing that you can't do just investing in the S&P 500 is cater which stocks you own based upon any of those beliefs. What you can't do in the S&P 500 is hedge your position to know if the market drops 30% that I only go down five. Now, by doing that, are you obviously reducing your amount of return potential? Of course. 
anytime you want, you want to limit the downside, you're limiting some of the upside. But if that's what you want to do, that doesn't mean it's any worse than anybody else. It's our job to show you how to most efficiently do that, which is why we're building portfolios for biblically responsible investing as we speak. Yeah, and it's also a thing where, you know, the one thing that you need to know about Aptis is that because they're fiduciaries legally obligated to do what's best for every client, clients always are at different points on the continuum of saving for retirement. And that consultation allows them to get to know you, what you want to prioritize as an investor. And also, they don't have one way. Like it's, you know, Warren Buffett is a S&P 500 guy. Okay, it's fine. But there are a lot of different vehicles out there. And if you go to Aptis, it's not going to be like, all we do are annuities, all we do are treasuries, all we do are bonds, all we do are stocks. That's not the way it is. So sit for the consultation, get to know Josh and his team. They will come up with a plan that is tailored to you. And then you can determine if that is the way that you want to proceed. My wife and I have done that. We are very, very, very satisfied. Get to know Josh and the Aptis team by calling and setting up your consultation. 614-917-1040 is their number. AptusWealth.com is their website that's spelled A-P-T-U-S, AptusWealth.com. Join Josh and me Monday, 1235 p.m. for the Money Monday segment on The Answer. And Josh will be back for another Aptus Retirement Blueprint radio show next week, Friday at 7, Saturday at noon. Thanks, Josh. Thank you. The airing of this program by this station is not an endorsement or recommendation by the station of the products or services discussed in the program. The station does not guarantee the results of any investments made by a listener to this program. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.